Good morning, everybody. Welcome to those two who are joining from online this morning with us as we continue tracking along in Hebrews, uh, and we will be in Hebrews chapter 11 today, but uh, if you want to find your place there, go ahead and and do so. Um, But in the meantime, I just want to kind of start off with a little story. Um, Years ago, this would have been during uh, my college years, a group of uh, close friends um, and myself went away on kind of a leadership building, team building retreat. And uh, there was high and ro- lo- uh, low ropes course elements that were involved. And one of the things that we did that some of you may be familiar with is a trust fall. Has anybody ever done a trust fall before? A lot of you have done trust falls. So this will probably register with you. Ring home this morning. And so uh, tr- if you've not done a trust fall before, um, in simple terms, it's where uh, somebody sails through the sky into the arms of uh, some people below, and hopefully uh, they get caught. So, no, what it really is, is uh, at least in my experience, th- on this day, it was about a six-foot-high form uh, platform that was kind of nailed to a tree that one person would stand upon with their back uh, turned to about eight to ten people below them in two different rows who were interlocking their arms in some fashion to hopefully be able to catch this person who fell off the platform into their arms. And so, I don't know if I'd done one of these before, but I I was a little bit uh, nerve-wracked by the idea. So I definitely, uh, being more on the cautious side, was one of the ones that was down below to help catch first. I was not the first one to volunteer to go up there, so I lacked faith. But... um, And what I did is I watched a series of people do this before me, and the instruction that was given, that if you were to fall most safely and have the best chance of of this going well, uh, you would actually fall as straight as possible, kind of lock your knees and your hips and just fall back off this platform. Um, And so some people did it better than others. The people who actually fell back straight um, were more or less like caught flawlessly, but there would be a few people who would kind of like, as they started to fall, they would like fetal position, right? They'd curl up and they'd become like almost this arrowhead with their bottom flexing at their hips and it's like cutting through the arms and more or less their fall was broken but some of them still made it through all the way to the ground because they didn't take on that form that they were told to if they were going to be caught safely. So I got up there, it was my turn to go and um, I had seen enough examples before me to just say, all right, it doesn't feel the safest way. I'd rather kind of curl up into a ball, but I'm just going to fall. So your back is to them. You're blindfolded. You can't see them. And you're six feet above them, plus another six and a half, half feet if you're me from where your head height is. And I fall back, and I stay locked in. And they caught me. They did fine. They did great. Um, and uh, because I, I just trust, okay, if this is the best technique, I'm going to do it. And these people who I was with, I trusted and knew as well. And so... They caught me and I was fine. And there's a couple of things that are relevant to our passes today uh, that that illustration serves. And one is that through that experience, uh, there was faith observed, right? I got to actually watch some people go before me and see how it went when you just fully trusted the people below you and the technique you were supposed to use. And then it was also faith practiced, where I actually got myself to uh, put that to the test and went for it. And followed the instructions to a T and was caught in my fall. And so that's just kind of whet your appetite for this idea of faith, of which Hebrews 11 is one of the places to go in Scripture to learn about. Uh, Famously, this passage is known as the Hall of Faith um, because we're about to encounter a number of different men and women throughout the history of God's people who exemplified it in different ways. 
Um, And it also gives us one of the clearest definitions for faith that we'll come across in the scriptures in the very first verse, in verse 1, followed by 39 more verses of examples. So we're going to read all 40. Just be, it's one of, it's a more, one of the more entertaining passages in Scripture, even though they're just brief snippets of these different biography, biographies. We won't have time to do a deep dive into the whole thing, but I would like you to at least hear it all this morning uh, because it is a wonderful passage of Scripture and encouraging and thought-provoking. So if you're not already there, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. That's on page 1195 of the blue ESV Uh, Bibles in your pew if you want to use one of those, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. And when you are ready, and if you are able, would you please stand me for the for the reading, stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Hebrews eleven, starting at verse one. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their uh, commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he committed he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, and which, uh, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. 
By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the, that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry, as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect." Lord, would you graciously open the eyes of our hearts to see the wonderful things in your law and your word this morning and bring about transformation in our lives because of it. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. So here's kind of where we're going to be going with this this morning. As we examine faith together, briefly here, um, there's two different kind of headings that we're going to be looking at, some different observations that I've made underneath. The one is faith experienced, and the other is faith witnessed. So what I mean by that is, uh, what is it like, faith experienced, what is it like to walk by faith? What does that mean experientially? What is that like for a Christian? And then faith witnessed being, what does that look like? when we observe it in others, particularly within the context of the church, because after all, this letter is being written to the people of God in a church. So what should faith look like? How should it be observed by an outsider looking in? And I won't list off all those different uh, um, observations underneath, but we'll go through them individually here as we kind of move into this. And again, I'm going to be brief this morning, I I hope, uh, but pointed Um, in an attempt to leave some space later to hear from some of our women who went away on retreat last week, uh, share some some testimony of their own journey of faith. So first, faith experienced. 
And the first uh, observation underneath that would be that faith sees what is unseen. And this is where we get into the definition a little bit that we're given at the beginning of Hebrews here. Chapter 11, verse 1. Again, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now that doesn't mean that as people of faith we don't see in some sense. Um, Culture's caricature of uh, what faith looks like for religious people is that it's completely blind, like a blindfold on, stepping up to the edge of something and, and jumping off without being able to see anything about it. But the biblical picture of faith is seeing the unseen, at least in some sense. Now, sure, there are things that are invisible to the naked eye, right? So we're given an example of that as early as chapter 11, verse 3, uh, when the author speaks of creation. He says, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, two things that are invisible, right? Words are invisible. We can't see them. God is invisible. We can't see him. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So certainly there are things that are invisible to the, to the naked eye, physically speaking. But this does not mean that there isn't a sense in which the invisible can be seen. Listen to some of the language that's used in the Hall of Faith here of the different saints who could see the unseen. Chapter 11, verse 27, speaking of Moses, when he was leading the people out of Egypt, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. God is invisible, yet Moses is said to have seen him in some sense. Then another form of faith that is pictured here in Hebrews 11 is faith that is visible, or or faith, faith in something that is visible, physical, but is not yet present. And we have multiple examples of this too. So for example, Noah in verse 7, we're told by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. See, sometimes faith is seeing what will be visible at some point in the future, but has not yet come to fruition. Noah believed that there was a coming flood in that world uh, for the judgment of sin. Another example of uh, faith uh, in something that can be seen but has not yet come to fruition is in Abraham's life in verses 8 through 10, where God called Abraham and his family to leave his home and go to a land at which he had not yet seen, something that was visible but not yet present reality for him. Now, interestingly, hear this in verse 10, Abraham's incentive to obey God um, is because of something that is invisible. We're told, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. What is that in reference to? It's in reference to heaven. That was his incentive to go to this place that could be seen but was not yet a reality for him. For me personally, heaven is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, informed by scripture, but in my mind's eye. Uh, and I find it to be thrilling, and I find it to be compelling in a, in a, in a way that um, actually helps me to move through struggles in life. Now, as Paul says, now I see in a mirror dimly, then we shall see face to face. I don't I can't even begin to imagine in its fullness what heaven is going to be like, but by eyes of faith, we can begin to see things that actually stir and move our hearts to obedience that are invisible to us by faith. And it can bring us joy and courage and excitement in the face of troubles. So seeing the unseen 
uh, cultivating eyes of faith is what fuels endurance for us when we find ourselves in the midst of trials and tribulations and when we find ourselves struggling because of unrealized promises on this side of eternity. And we see that actually again and again in this passage with the saints that are listed here, that the promises God had made to them, some of which were even meant to come on this side of of heaven, are not fully realized. So for Abraham, he left again what was known and secure to him, this homeland that he came from, Ur of the Chaldeans, um, and, and he was told to go to this new land that God had promised to give him and his descendants, And for the entirety of his his life, he wandered around like a nomad, a foreigner in that land, living in tents, we're told. He would never actually see the fulfillment of that land becoming, in its fullness, the promised land for Israel. That would be Joshua and that generation who hundreds of years later would enter in. And in fact, in some sense, this was really true of all the saints that we read about up to this point in, in Hebrews 11. In verse 13, we're told, these all... So Sarah and Abraham and uh, Cain and Abel and you know, all the ones who had been listed before, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Listen, you may have hopes and desires and dreams uh, that have gone unfulfilled in this life and may to your dying day good things that you see others have, good things that you read in Scripture. God gives his people whom he loves that you may not actually experience in its fullness. And yet you are in good company. But hear this, the way that you and the way that the saints that have gone before us counteract that disappointment is, in, is by cultivating eyes of faith for the promise that is not yet but is to come. Okay? So how do we do that? How do we cultivate eyes of faith? Well, number two here, under kind of what it means to experience faith, faith grows as it's practiced. We see even in this passage in Hebrews 11. Let's focus again on Abraham for a moment and his journey uh, because you especially see it play out for him. So first, Abraham is called to leave the land that he knew, that he was born in, that he grew up in, that he had established himself in for the unknown. And this is early on, presumably, in his journey of faith. We don't know what encounters with God he'd had prior to this. Um, We're, in fact, told in this passage that prior even to leaving his land for this promised land, that uh, he and Sarah were barren. They hadn't been able to have children to this point. So he'd already undergone some suffering and disappointment in his life. And yet he trusts and he goes. Now, they're still without child when they get into Canaan, where they're wandering around as, as foreigners, And God promises at this point to Abraham to make a great nation out of him, and we're told that Abraham believes him and is counted to him as righteous, right? That's that famous line. He counted to Abraham as righteousness, his belief in God. And what happens? Well, Sarah supernaturally conceives. Both of them are, she's, we're told, 90 and he's 100 years old. This is well beyond the years in which naturally they would have been able to conceive. So God supernaturally enables her to conceive That would not have happened had Abraham and his family not trusted the Lord in faith and obedience and left what was known for the unknown. They would not have encountered that next miraculous provision by God. Next we see God tests Abraham later on in his story, instructing him to sacrifice his only son, the one who had supernaturally been born. And we see this in verse 19 where we're told, uh, 
the faith of, by the faith of Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And of course, if you know the story, as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac in faith that God could even raise him in the dead, if that's the way that the, the promise would be fulfilled to make a great nation through him, God miraculously provides a ram that shows up on the scene that is caught in a thicket that Abraham can use for the sacrifice instead. And as a result of this encounter, the relationship is so tight after that that God calls Abraham his friend. So near and close is their relationship. How was Abraham able to do this? Well, his eyes of faith allowed him to see Isaac being raised from the dead because in a sense he'd already seen someone raised from the dead. They they had a child when they were as good as dead. See, this is how the eyes of faith for us as Christians are sharpened. As you live by faith, God shows up and meets you in that. And it's as if, uh, as the sample size of those things increases, it's, it's as if God and the immaterial, the invisible, begin to materialize in your heart and your mind. And you start to live with those things with as much clarity before you as you do the real world that we live in. And so the way you grow in faith, the way that your spiritual eyes to see the unseen are sharpened is through practicing faith, saying yes to God in small ways and in in big ways. Third observation about the experience of faith. Faith is accompanied by alienation. right, strange word, but I used it because it kind of serves two two purposes, two roles in, in the way that we experience that as Christians. There's two senses that we see here in Hebrews 11. Uh, the saints of old and, and us to, and we today as Christians will experience alienation in the sense of pressures from the outside um, where we're made to feel by the world like we don't belong. But also this, the, the internal homesickness that you'll experience as a Christian as more and more you start to realize this world is not my final home. So we look at Noah, for example, in verse 7. Noah is instructed to build this ark, uh, instructed by God to build this ark, this boat, this gigantic boat that eventually will hold him and all the creatures of the earth, or at least a pair of them, uh, to avoid God's coming judgment. And he's instructed to do this while the weather's still great outside, blue skies, chirping birds, and while everybody's just living it up around him. Imagine the kind of faith that would have taken. And it seems like everything is okay. I don't see the storm brewing and coming, but I'm going to follow God in faith and do this thing. And by the way, the description of the times that Noah lived in that we read about in Genesis chapter 6 says this, that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. I don't know how you say it any more definitively. That It was just a very, 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 very broken and dark time in the world that Noah lived in Don't mistake that as people living in misery. Sin can feel really good even if its end ultimately is death. And that's, by the way, guys, why we need to judge what's right and wrong based upon what God has revealed to us rather than what feels good. In a sinful world, it is dangerous to trust your heart uh, as the arbiter of truth and of what's right and wrong, apart from an objective source of truth and goodness to measure your heart's desires against. Pretty sure that Noah's contemporaries thought that life was great, and yet they're described as every intention of the thought of their hearts was only evil continually. 
So as Noah is building this ark, by the way, as best scholars can tell from what we have in the scriptures about the timing, anywhere from like 70 to 100 years, decades. It was just him and his family building this huge boat. It would have taken time. So first of all, there's this reality of the length of time which he persevered in this obedience. This was not an overnight thing. But over the course of these decades, can't you just imagine how Noah and his family would have been laughed at and made to look the fool by those around him, his peers, while he's constructing this vessel through which God would ultimately end up saving him. See, when you see the world and you live in light of a reality that's beyond what you can see with your physical eyes, sometimes your life is going to start to look pretty weird and people aren't going to understand. And sometimes that's even going to be offensive to them. Not everything. There will be those things that the Bible calls the good works by which people will see and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Matthew talks about that in his gospel. Sacrificial acts of love that universally can be identified as that's transcendently good and people can appreciate that, Christian and non-Christian alike. But think about it in Noah's case. Noah built an ark because he agreed with God that the prevailing values of his day were evil and that there was judgment coming. So his life stood for values that opposed the culture of his day. And that would not have been well received. So there are, there's a reality in which when you live by faith, you will experience this sense of alienation and that you will be made to feel like a pariah and like you don't fit or you don't belong by the world around you. And at the same time, there's this internal reality that will grow as you live by faith, as you see the as you see the unseen, you see God, you, he gives you a, a clarifying picture of the eternity that awaits you in Christ, and it will foster this internal homesickness in you. As it says in verse 13, acknowledging we are strangers and exiles on the earth. That's what that means, like you're homesick. That's why it says they had the opportunity to go back to their physical home from which they had come, but they didn't, because they're actually looking forward to a future eternal heavenly home. Right? And so that's what happens is this internal homesick grows in us as we see what this world is lacking and also as we see the vestiges of the goodness and the beauty that it still has that nonetheless points to a future reality. So that will be a part of the experience of faith is a sense of alienation as Christians, okay? All right, so that's um, faith experienced and now faith witnessed. Again, more from this angle now of what, what will we see? Um, what will we observe? What is evidenced as we look um, at examples of faith from the outside? And the first thing is that faith is evidenced through obedience. Eighteen times in this passage, it says either by faith or through faith, followed by some action of obedience that that faith resulted in. So whether it was Noah building an ark or Abraham leaving his homeland for a foreign land or Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son or Moses leading uh, God's people out of, uh, out of Egypt or Rahab giving safe harbor to the spies from Israel. All of, there's just example after example of obedience, of a practical outworking of faith. Right? We know from places like the letter of James in the New Testament um, that this is what should accompany faith. James says that faith apart from works is dead. He actually then uses uh, the illustration of saying it's like a body without the spirit. That body is going to be dead. So part and parcel are good works with faith. 
Now, caveat here, because faith must always be accompanied by obedience to be authentic, right? Faith must always be accompanied by obedience to be authentic. It's going to translate to action of some kind. However, action isn't necessarily an indicator of authentic faith. We see this in verse 4 when we look at the lives of the brothers Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. So by faith, we're told, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by his gifts, by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And if you read the Old Testament account of Cain, Cain's offering was not accepted. And here's the thing, both brothers showcased action. Both brothers showcased religious action. These were sacrificial offerings unto God. But only one was fueled by true faith, and that was Abel, We don't know exactly why. We don't know if Abel's meat offering was considered to be more valuable than, you know, the crops uh, that Cain offered. We don't know if, uh, you know, Abel offered an unblemished land, whereas, you know, Cain offered, like, the portion of his crops that had the blight that he wasn't going to eat anyway. We, We don't really know the reason why. We just know that God saw Abel's obedience as proceeding from a heart of genuine faith. And I imagine that what that was is... Abel's offering proceeded from a place where he wasn't withholding anything from God, even his best, because he trusted that God was better than even the best thing in this world that he could possibly give up. In the New Testament, Paul kind of raises the bar, saying in Romans 12 that our acceptable offering to God is our whole lives. That's what to be a living sacrifice means. We don't make sacrifices in the Old Testament sense today. So we are that sacrifice, not literally killing ourselves, but dying to ourselves daily. That's the offering of faith that is pleasing to God like Abel's was. And so faith is evidenced by um, obedience, but that obedience is characterized by the faith that God is truly better. David says it so beautifully in Psalm 63 when he says, Your steadfast love is better than life, so my lips will praise you, right? So faith is evidenced through obedience and, obedi- and an obedience that's characterized by truly believing, as is the theme of Hebrews, Jesus is better than even my own life. Secondly, faith is strengthened, uh, faith strengthens rather the saints. One of the main points of this passage is to strengthen Christians to persevere based upon the examples of other people's faith. Now at this point in history, there are countless millions at least um, Uh, that have run their leg of the race before us successfully. So look at them, imitate them, understand their faith and and how that works for them. One of the things that I do that's a steady part of my uh, reading diet is reading Christian biography. I find that to be so encouraging uh, to read different biographies of the saints that have gone before me. But even better, Get around the people of faith that are actually in your life and your community of faith, in particular even here at Terra Nova in our church family. I just want to give you one example of that. Um, many, if not most of you, know new Susan Olgeen, who passed away a couple of years ago. And one of the things that I so admired about and was challenged in my own faith by her is she would always ask these really hard questions, but they always came from a place of true sincerity. At the same time, she was a woman of deep conviction about what she believed. So the questions she asked weren't demonstrating some immaturity on her part. So she had this beautiful combination of like 
she knew the one in whom she believed, and yet she constantly continued to ask questions and was sincere and just wanting to grow and know the answers to those things. And I was challenged by that in a really good way. And on the women's retreat uh, last weekend, my wife shared as a part of her own testimony, um, there was a season of our life right around the same time where Susan was dying of cancer, where we were going through some hard things. And Susan, from the hospital while she's dying of cancer, texted the ladies in our tribe from Psalm 16. She said, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. And that was incredibly encouraging to us. And in particular, my wife, it was um, this kind of linchpin turning point for her understanding what it looks, what it means to look with eyes of faith to Jesus. Even while dying of cancer, Susan was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Now, I want to say, too, that the eyes of faith that she had to be able to do that didn't happen in a moment. They were cultivated over a lifetime of living by faith. Get around those types of people. We have a lot of them in our congregation. I'm so thankful for that. Um, This is why the author said, just one chapter ago, guys, like one or two minutes prior to this in reading through Hebrews, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Because faith is strengthened by hanging out with the saints who are expressing and exemplifying faith. Okay? So that's the second observation here is faith strengthens the saints. That's a big part of the reason why Hebrews 11 exists is so we can see the example of the saints who've gone before. Thirdly, faith points to its object more than the source. And this one is so important to be reminded of this morning. Sometimes we can make faith too much about how amazing people are who are expressing faith rather than how amazing the God is in whom they trust. I'll just say that one more time. Sometimes we can make superheroes out of the people who are exemplifying faith rather than recognizing that that faith actually shows us something about the object of their faith, the one in whom they trust. And it's a mistake because we can think that they have some superpower that we don't, so we'll never be like them. But that's to miss what the true source of the strength of their faith is from. Instead, we need to realize the strength of that person's faith reflects the clarity with which they're beholding the object of their faith, of Jesus. The quality of that person's faith actually really reflects the quality of the one thing that they have faith in. They're seeing the beauty and the glory and the goodness and the majesty of Jesus maybe more brightly than the rest. It isn't something innately amazing about them. It's what's so amazing about the one whom they ha- in whom they have faith. Here's why I say all this, and even if you don't catch it upon your first reading, eventually you'll start to read Hebrews 11 and be like, there are some strange and unsavory characters in this chapter that are listed amongst those in the hall of faith. What do I do with this? So sure, for example, you have Moses, who we're told in Hebrews 11, left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, right? Bold, faith, and no fear. But that wording probably is even meant to bring to our minds an incident earlier in his life when he killed an Egyptian taskmaster and then we're told he fled Pharaoh in fear. It's like this wink on the part of the author to say, remember who this guy was. By faith, he became who he is. And while Sarah here is said to have received power to conceive because she considered him faithful who had promised Sarah, Abraham's wife, who conceived when she was 90 years old with Isaac, doesn't, like, if you know that story, like, isn't what comes to mind for you, like, wait, 
wasn't she the one that laughed incredulously at God when he first told Abraham that he was going to give them a child in their old age? No mention of that here. Obviously, at some point, she began to see the trustworthiness and goodness of God more and believed him for it, but certainly imperfectly. Then you've got Rahab, who is not an Israelite, first off, and who's noted here as being a prostitute up to that point where she provided the safe harbor for the spies. You've got Samson, uh, who's mentioned in the very next verse, who was a womanizer and a hedonist for much of his life. He's a strange one to have included in this list. You've got David, who, if you know his story, was an adulterer and a murderer. So what a reflection of grace to us those listed in Hebrews chapter 11 is, that they would be added amongst this list and commended as people of faith. It gives us hope. It gives me hope. And to say it again, it underscores that the quality of someone's faith should tell us more about the worthiness of our God than the one who's exercising that faith. Amen? Amen. So as I said, trying to keep things a little bit shorter today because the journey of faith didn't stop with those who we just read about in Hebrews 11. But it's a journey that all of us are on who are following Christ here this morning. And hearing stories from our brothers and sisters in Christ today, the ones who live and exist around you, is just as maybe even more important in some ways than reading about those exemplars of faith that we see in Scripture. So we're going to celebrate communion here in a moment over the course of a couple of songs. But after that, there's going to be an opportunity for some of our women who would like who went away a week ago on our women's retreat um, to share some stories of their own. Not from a place of perfection, not from a place of, of fully formed disciples of Jesus, but some stories of the overflow of how God met them on that retreat, how he revealed himself to them, the ways that they're growing and learning, and that he's strengthening their faith and helping them to see him more clearly. And, um, and ladies, for those of you who would like to do that this morning, we'll do this kind of the way that we did with our guys a few weeks ago. So um, after you take communion over the next couple of songs, if you'd like to, if you could come up front to one of the pews that are closer here to the front, that way we'll know who would like to share and who's ready to do that after those couple of songs. So before we uh, take communion together, would you guys join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that faith is not something that uh, we have to muster up. We thank you that rather it's a reflection of something that's true about you. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion this morning, we confess that the object of our faith is Jesus, through whom we have our righteousness and our forgiveness from our sins, and through whom we're accepted as beloved sons and daughters into your family. Lord, as much as we're called to exercise faith, Man, I just pray you would also open our eyes to be able to see more clearly today, to see you, the object of our faith. And I especially pray, Lord, for those who do not yet see, that you would open their eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit, through your word, and even through the stories of faith of your saints that we read about in Scripture and that we hear about today. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.